Welcome to Bio 53. This is a, a course, Stanford Continuing Studies, called the Stem Cell. Uh, if you're not registered for this course, um, you can get off at the next gate. And, uh, and those of you that are registered for Bio 53 will have uh, either chosen to be registered as a um, for credit, no credit, uh, or for no grade. And I'll explain to you in a couple of minutes uh, what each of those means in terms of the class requirements. So over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to talk about everything to do with stem cells, the biology of stem cells, the clinical applications, uh, those that exist for stem cells, and perhaps most interestingly, at least to me, the politics, ethics, law, and economic issues associated with, with stem cells. First off, a few housekeeping details. Again, this is Bio 53. My name is Chris Scott. I'm the director of the Stanford Program on Stem Cells and Society. The text and reading assignments are fairly straightforward. Um, I published a book in 2006 uh, and second edition now this year called Stem Cell Now. It's published by Penguin uh, Plume. You can buy it at the bookstore or you can buy it at amazon.com it's cheap i think it's eight bucks seven or eight bucks and every week i'll be passing out a scientific paper the paper won't be a difficult paper to read uh, these will be fairly basic and straightforward and what i want you to do with these is simply look at the first few paragraphs in the paper there's a paragraph at the top of most science papers called the abstract what i'd like you to do is take a look at that abstract every week and digest it. Think about it in terms of what we learned the week before. Again, if you're going to get a letter grade, a credit no credit, or no grade, there are different requirements for each of those. For a letter grade, or if you're taking the class credit, no credit, this requires a paper. Uh, the paper will be due the last week of class, six to eight pages, double-spaced on any topic that you'd like. It can be a science topic, it can be something you picked up in the New York Times that interests you, it could be something, one of the things that caused you to register for the class, something that you've been interested in learning about. Um, those grades will be uh, posted probably the week or two after the end of class, depending on when I get to them, and they'll be listed on the Continuing Studies website. And then this is something I do in uh, most of the classes in continuing studies, and that's I'd like to have volunteers for weekly short presentations. These are very, very informal, five to ten minutes or so. You can pick a news topic that you came up with uh, during the week. Uh, by Wednesday, please send it to me. And then at the end of the class, near the last hour of uh, 50 or minutes or hour of the class, we'll have a couple of brief presentations by uh, students along with some questions and answers. Again, these are really informal. Um, they're designed to to uh, let others in the class know kind of what you've been thinking about and also I find myself learning a great deal from the presentations uh, brought in by the students. So those are the basic outlines uh, of the class. What you'll be getting in terms of content uh, in the class uh, oh, by the way, here's the book uh, for the for the class. Uh, this is the cover for it, and just look for it uh, at the Stanford Bookstore. It's pretty easy to find, again, also on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. So uh, to the class structure, we're going to have um, presentations near the end of the class. 
I'll start with a lecture. The lecture will be between 35 and 40 minutes. Today will be a little shorter than usual. We'll have some discussion about the lecture and about the presentations. And then the fun part about the class this summer is that the uh, content of the class and the slides will be on iTunes U. So the, the uh, discussion uh, during the lectures uh, will be recorded by iTunes U and you'll be able to go to the website near the end of the class, is that right? Near the end of the class, when the class is uh, over rather, uh, and download these uh, lectures and the lectures will be queued in to the slideshow so you can uh, basically follow right along. Here are the course aims. So these are the things I'd like you to take away from the course by July 23rd. That's our last meeting on Monday. So one important thing is to know the terminology. One thing that seems to be a real problem in this field is that people have a hard time understanding exactly what the terms of biology mean. And I, I should say that it isn't always just people that aren't in the stem cell field that have this problem. Even people that study this day in and day out, the biologists themselves sometimes aren't really clear about the terminology surrounding stem cell biology. So one of the aims of the course will try to get our, our arms around exactly what certain terms mean. For example, what an embryo means, what nuclear transfer means, what the term therapeutic cloning is all about, what some of the terms of the uh, moral debate uh, are about, such as the moral status of the embryo. So by the time the class is finished, you'll have what I hope will be a good lexicon that you can discuss with friends and family. For example, when I go home uh, every year at uh, Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, I have wonderful conversations around the, the dinner table with my, my parents, my dad in particular, who's a conservative uh, person and has voted for George Bush. And of course, we have some pretty spirited um, arguments and discussions about stem cell biology. Uh, at the holidays, and I'm hoping that uh, you'll be able to do the same for uh, people that you know. Then also, reading is probably one of the reasons why you're here. Uh, you've encountered the hype and hubbub about stem cell biology in the papers or in newspapers uh, or in, in journals or in magazines. And so at the end of the class, I'm hoping that your comprehension of an article in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or Wall Street Journal will give you a better understanding of what the reporters are talking about and, more importantly, hoping that you'll be able to read these articles critically and, and, uh, and identify places where the reporters perhaps uh, have not been as clear as they could be. And then a third goal would be to read an abstract of a research paper. I've already mentioned um, what the abstract uh, is. It's usually the first couple of paragraphs at the top of the research papers. As I said, I'll be passing one of these out every class for the next four weeks or so. So just reading those first few paragraphs and getting the gist of what the scientist uh, and the scientific team is talking about, what their aims are, what questions they're hoping to identify, and whether they've actually addressed those questions in the conclusions. Also knowing the history of stem cell biology, you know this field is really, really young. Embryonic stem cell biology is barely a decade old. Adult stem cells, we've known about for a little bit longer, maybe 20 years or so. But understanding how these two fields have come together into this fascinating new area of biology 
will be a benefit uh, of uh, taking the class. Then near the end of the course, the last two, two classes, uh, in fact, we'll be discussing some of the major ethical arguments for and against using embryonic stem cells in research and hopefully in, uh, in therapies. And then the last class uh, will be focused on the political, economic, and social dimensions of stem cell research. These are the things that we study in the Stanford program on stem cells and society, and those uh, comprise some of my own research efforts. So the curriculum, pretty straightforward. Uh, we'll have five sequential lectures. Today you're going to get perhaps an entire year of undergraduate cell biology, genetics, and embryology in just a few minutes. Um, the second lecture on July 2nd, we'll learn about five important research advances. These are studies that have just been published in the major scientific journals such as Nature Science, Nature Biotechnology, and the new journal Cell, Stem Cell. And we're going to be uh, graced with the pleasure of Manya Baker. Uh, Manya is a uh, senior editor at Nature Magazine. She's the new editor of the Stem Cell uh, web portal. And she's uh, going to give you, uh, in her estimation, what the five big recent advances are, including two advances that were reported in the International Stem Cell uh, meeting that was uh, just held in Australia. And Manya and I and 2,000 uh, researchers were there in Australia learning about the, the recent advances in this, in this field. It was a tremendously exciting meeting. And she'll give you the high points of that meeting along with some other insights into the hot off the science or hot off the bench science. And then July 9th, we'll trans, uh, translate that research information into the most recent clinical advances. The question that I get the most from people who are uh, asking about stem cell biology and the recent uh, news that accompanies the field is which clinical therapy will uh, come first? Well, these questions are really hard to answer right now because as I mentioned, the field is so young. But we'll learn on, the, on, on, on July 9th what five important clinical advances could be, including a couple of therapies that are uh, destined for the clinic in the next year or so. So you'll be able to take away at least uh, what the uh, clinical scientists are saying as the most important diseases that will be tackled with these therapies. On the 16th, we'll have an entire two hours devoted to ethics. That promises to be a really good one. And then on the last day, I mentioned uh, policy, law, and society. Some of the topics we'll cover in policy, law, and society are intellectual property, which companies will be patenting and using the intellectual property to develop uh, uh, new products and therapies. We'll talk about policy, how individual states and countries are addressing the ethical issues and putting these uh, deliberations into law. And then finally, we'll discuss some of the societal issues, how these therapies will then be distributed to the people who need them, and how societies, each individual society, is uh, addressing embryonic stem cells in particular in terms of uh, funding it uh, and allowing it to go forward. So with that as an introduction, uh, let's go full strength into stem cells. One of the most 
fascinating things about stem cells, at least to me, is that they are there to replenish the over billion cells we lose every hour in the human body. So as I look at, at the audience, here I see a bunch of people that are steadily, by, by cell by cell, falling apart. Uh, and believe it or not, cell by cell, you're being put back together again. And that's the astonishing thing about embryonic stem cells, is that they are the only cells in the body that are there to function to replenish cells that either die naturally or die by disease or, uh, in some cases, die by injury. So just to give you an idea of how astounding this regenerative power is, without a replacement uh, cell strategy for the body, we would lose our intestines in two days. So there are stem cells in the deep reaches of our intestine in a little place called the crypt that actually completely replace the interior lining of our intestine every 48 hours. For me, it's probably closer to a day because I really like spicy food. For the skin, our cells replace uh, layers of the skin in three weeks. Our red blood, which is replaced by billions, literally billions of cells, would turn to dust in four months without a stem cell to replenish red blood and white blood cells. So these cells have a terrific regenerative power, and this really is the reason why scientists and medicine are so fascinated with what the cells could do for us in human health. Here's a very simple schematic of the cell. This is taken from my book. The black and white figures you'll see are all taken from the book, so you can refer the lecture to the pages uh, that you encountered during the first set of readings. The cell has three basic components, a plasma membrane that surrounds the nucleus, which is containing, which contains the genetic material called DNA or deoxyribonucleic acid. And then surrounding the nucleus is a jelly-like structure called the cytoplasm, where a lot of the activity and energy goes on in, uh, in, a, in a living cell. And this is an example of a white blood cell. The white blood cells have this characteristic kidney-shaped nucleus. The nucleus, of course, varies from cell to cell, and some cells have uh, no nuclei at all. Can any of you tell me which cell has no nucleus? Right, the red blood cell. Also in the nucleus, and the focus of a lot of research is the chromosomes, genes, and DNA that are specific to uh, stem cell biology. Here's a schematic, a diagram of a chromosome as it's getting ready to duplicate uh, in the cell that we just saw. And as you can see, if you take these tightly wound strands of DNA and play them out, they contain within them the four bases that are part of the codes of DNA. Uh, the coded DNA sequence was first discovered by Watson and Crick in 1954 and really forms the basis of most of our knowledge about molecular biology and genetics these days. And here's a picture of how an unfortunate use of DNA is used in the theater. I just discovered this picture uh, on the web. How many of you got, have gone to Beach Blanket uh, Babylon in San Francisco? A, a few of you I see. This is, uh, I think, King Louis XIV, and this was la last year's production with uh, uh, with uh, Charles, King Charles, or Prince Charles, 
uh, and Val Diamond on the right. And uh, I think it's a pretty funny picture because it actually looks like a half uh, of a, um, a chromosome, uh, the picture just before. So here's something you can use at parties, um, especially parties with biochemists and geneticists uh, and stem cell biologists. And this is called the central dogma. You may remember this from high school or beginning college biology. And that's that the DNA in the nucleus makes a similar molecule called RNA. This RNA usually has an M in front of it, M for messenger, which means it takes the information out of the nucleus and transports it into that jelly-like cytoplasm I showed you before. And in the cytoplasm, it makes uh, another uh, set of molecules called proteins. And so it's this series of chemical events that form the basis really of all life. And uh, this series of events is essential to our understanding of, uh, about stem cells, which I'll discuss in a little bit. So here's a picture from the book that shows you uh, protein synthesis, also called gene expression, uh, in, in the works. So this strand of messenger RNA that's taking the genetic information out of the nucleus now into the cytoplasm snuggles up next to a ribosome, a cell organelle, and it's at that point where a string of amino acids is formed based on the genetic code in the messenger RNA. And it's these amino acids, when they grow and become longer, become those uh, uh, peptides, which are small proteins, and the proteins themselves. Proteins and peptides uh, can be dozens to hundreds to thousands of amino acids long. And it is this building, basic building block of uh, human biology that forms everything uh, we have, including our hair, skin, nails, cells, and all the rest. Everything is made up of uh, proteins formed by long chains of amino acids. So this is all designed really to give you an example of what, it, what these things, uh, why these things are important to the beginnings of development. So in order to, to really understand how stem cells come about, it's important to grasp the initial stages of human life. So let's begin with gametogenesis. Gametogenesis is uh, simply a term that uh, means the formation of our gametes, uh, the eggs and the sperm. Eggs formed by females, sperms of course by, by males. The cells that give rise or produce eggs and sperms are called oocytes and spermatocytes. These cells have the normal complement of chromosomes. In humans, uh, that number is 46. But when oocytes and spermatocytes enter into gametogenesis, they divide and the gamete and the chromosomes in the gametes are reduced by one half. So an oocyte, for example, will make an egg and that egg will have 23 chromosomes. A spermatocyte will make sperm, millions of sperm, and each of those sperm will have 23 chromosomes. When the sperm unites with the egg at fertilization, the chromosomal number, number of 46 chromosomes is then reconstituted. 123 chromosome sperm is united with 123 chromosome egg, and the result is a zygote, or beginning of the embryo stage, at 46 chromosomes. So 
Embryogenesis, by most definitions in biology and embryology, starts at this stage, the formation of the embryo when sperm and egg unite. And this is one of these things you can take away from the first class and use in your readings, is that when people talk about the human embryo, they can actually be referring to many different stages of embryogenesis. In fact, embryogenesis begins at day zero and generally is considered to stop at week eight. So anytime someone refers to an embryo, unless they're saying specifically at what stage, what day, what week the embryo is in terms of its age, uh, you won't know whether the embryo is day zero or some, some day later. So for the purposes of the class, when I talk about the embryo, I'll be talking about uh, embryogenesis at day two to day six. I'll occasionally refer to the embryo at stages earlier and later than that. But the debate about embryonic stem cell research really centers on the embryo at that stage, day two to day six. So this slide shows the first few days of human development, and it's called cleavage. Remember, at fertilization, the embryo is just one cell, but that cell soon divides into two, and two into four, and four into eight, and finally into something called the blastocyst, another term worth taking home, a hollow ball of cells, about 100 to 140 cells in total. The interesting thing about cleavage is that the cells, when they divide, get progressively smaller. So in this example on the right-hand side of the slide, you'll see that the interior of the embryo gets quite densely packed with very small cells until they finally start to segregate into varying forms, one set of cells on the outside of the blastocyst and a clump of cells on the inside of the blastocyst called the inner cell mass. Now, the embryo at this stage of life, at about day four or so, is astonishingly small. You couldn't or you can't uh, see it very well with your naked eye. It's about 0.1 millimeters across, about the size of a full stop at the end of a sentence, a little bit smaller than the diameter of a human hair. The embryo at day four has two parts. One, the trophectoderm which goes on to make the structures that support the embryo as it develops in the uterus, the placenta and amnion, and the inner cell mass, a collection of between 40 and, say, 60 or so cells that then goes on to become the animal. Now, in this case, I've shown human embryogenesis, but for mammals, the process is essentially the same. Cleavage, two cells dividing to four, and so on, until you have a blastocyst. Uh, a little bit later on. Now, one point to make about this slide is not always do you have two to four to four to eight. Sometimes cells divide um, in terms of their odd numbers and even numbers, but the end result is pretty much the same, a hollow ball of cells. So here are some micrographs of a human embryo at two days, the two cell stage, four uh, cell stage, the eight cell stage, and then again the blastocyst stage. Here at the eight cell stage, you can see uh, the cell resembles uh, kind of a blueberry, and that's why it's called the morula. And the morula 
when you see it in different views, tends to be a bumpy structure uh, that resembles a, a very small, of course, piece of fruit. Here it is again, now in a schematic form. Here you can see kind of the bumpy nature of an embryo at day six, sliced in the center and peering inside. You'll see a pretty well-defined inner cell mass. Remember, the inner cell mass goes on to become the animal uh, and the embryo, the embryo which then becomes the animal. So the paper I'm going to hand out at the end of the class is by James Thompson. He is an embryologist and veterinarian and stem cell researcher at the University of Wisconsin. And his paper in November of 1998 really started the field of embryonic stem cell biology. Summarized very, very briefly on the right-hand side of this slide is the experiment that Dr. Thompson did to get something called an embryonic stem cell line. He took a human embryo, isolated the inner cell mass from the inside of the embryo, put it on a layer of cells that were designed to feed the cells from the inner cell mass, and lo and behold, after several tries, he was able to get an immortalized, that is, long-lived line of, of uh, human embryonic stem cells. These cells grew, and they grew very well for Dr. Thompson. In fact, they grew so well that if he didn't take the cells and divide them up into new glass dishes or plastic dishes, that they would soon overcrowd the, uh, the culture medium and die. So the one thing that uh, James Thompson found was that cells, when they were isolated this way, became immortal. And that was a very important uh, part of his discovery. Now here's a picture taken right here from Stanford, from one of our embryonic stem cell laboratories, of embryonic stem cells in a plastic Petri dish. So the embryonic stem cells are the round, very well-defined cells on the left and center of the slides. And then you'll see these very long, shiny kinds of cells on the right, upper right side of the slide. Those are the feeder cells. Those cells have been treated with a chemical so that they no longer divide, but are still alive. And as they are alive, they secrete important nutrients into the broth that surrounds the embryonic stem cells, keeping the embryonic stem cells alive and dividing. And these cells, as you can see, if you peer at the slide closely, you can see that some cells are actually dividing from one into two. Uh, and this is a very healthy culture. And one of the ways you can tell this is a healthy culture is that the margin on the outside of this clump of cells is very well defined. So that's a little bit about deriving lines of embryonic stem cells. You've learned that the lines of embryonic stem cells come from the inner cell mass of a blastocyst. Now I'm going to switch gears a bit and tell you about another very important experiment that happened just about the same time that James Thompson had his discovery, and that was the first cloned animal. Actually, it turns out that the first cloned mammal, rather not animal, wasn't uh, this experiment, but rather an experiment that was done uh, more than 10 years before. But this was the one that got most of the attention. You'll remember the uh, science article of 19... Uh, 97 that announced the birth of Dolly, the cloned sheep. And only on Google could you get these two images of Dolly Parton on the left and Dolly the sheep just below her. And the connection between the two is that 
the scientists that did this experiment took a cell from the mammary gland of a sheep, one kind of sheep called a fin dorset, represented at the top right of the slide, and took that cell and fused it with an egg that was empty. And the reason the egg was empty is that the nucleus had been removed with a very small glass pipette. And he fused these two uh, cells together, one without a nucleus, one with the nucleus. Remember, the nucleus has the genetic material with a little pulse of electricity and some chemicals. And lo and behold, after uh, several hundred tries of this, he was able to produce a healthy Finn Dorset sheep, a clone of the animal that is in the upper right of the, of the slide. And the reason that this sheep is considered a clone is why? That's right, because the genetic material is the same as the material taken from the udder of the Finn Dorset sheep. So Dr. Wilmot basically followed the processes that I've shown you in terms of early embryogenesis, where the one cell turns into two, two to four, finally becomes a blastocyst. That embryo at day two or three, I believe, in sheep, it's a little bit uh, more advanced in sheep than it is in human, is then placed in a surrogate mother, and then a few months later, the, the, uh, the baby is born. Now, I mentioned that this was one successful try in about 250 tries, and that's because this process is tremendously inefficient. Um, imagine what it takes to reprogram or reset all the genes of a cell that has been told through development to be a skin cell, or an udder cell in this case, to then create an entirely new animal. That's an astonishing uh, feat for the egg to accomplish, and it is a special set of chemicals and genetic signals in the egg that actually uh, is able to take a cell, an end-of-the-road cell like a skin cell, successfully reprogram it like you'd reprogram a computer uh, and produce a brand new animal. So what I'm going to tell you next is what I consider three strategies for embryonic stem cell research. Remember, we haven't talked about adult stem cells yet. That's coming up. But let's talk about three potential strategies for using embryonic stem cells, excuse me, for research and medical purposes. So the first would be using embryos that are donated from in vitro fertilization clinics, that is, by parents who have entered into reproductive uh, technologies to try to have, child, uh, try to have a child. And after they have their child, they may have extra embryos that are no longer needed. And so they can donate these uh, embryos to science. So during the IVF cycle, a sperm is, is uh, united with an egg in fertilization, and that embryo is grown to the blastocyst stage, at which point it's frozen at minus 80 degrees Fahrenheit. These, when you read about the press of uh, frozen embryos is the stage that embryos are put into the freezer between, say, four and uh, five days or so. So these embryos then can be used in research 
We'll get this to go in just a second. There it goes. And by the procedure that I showed you before that James Thompson perfected, the inner cell mass can be removed and put into a plastic dish, making a line of very potent embryonic stem cells. Now, the amazing thing about these stem cells is that, in theory, they can produce any of the over 200 different cells and tissues that comprise our body. That's the excitement about embryonic stem cells, is that they have this tremendous potency. This potency is described in the literature as pluripotency, that is, the ability to make many uh, different kinds of cells and tissues, some of which I've shown for you here, heart muscle cells, liver cells, neurons, and the cells of the gut. Now, the idea about having a immortal line of cells that can produce any and all different kinds of cells and tissues is that then they can be transplanted into patients who need them. So looking at this slide, what about it uh, is the weakness of this particular strategy? Can anyone tell me? Right. So the answer was that these cells uh, would be rejected by the patient that got them. So the reason for that is that the people who actually donate the embryo are of a different genetic type than the patient who actually gets it. So this is the problem we have with transplants of every kind, right? If my heart goes into, let's say, your heart, your immune cells, your white blood cells, will reject it because it uh, isn't recognized as belonging to you. It's mine, and vice versa. So the same problem is encountered for embryonic stem cell strategies of this type. But because we have a pretty good handle on uh, how to uh, modulate uh, immune uh, rejection in, in uh, some of our current research, people think that this is still a viable strategy for some uses of stem cells in the therapeutic arena. Now, a second way of uh, using embryonic stem cells is on the next slide. It's a little slow in coming here. Hang with me. And that's something you may have heard in the press called therapeutic cloning. Now, I don't use that term much in the class because I think it's inaccurate. First off, no therapies have ever been made using this technique. And second, cloning isn't that exactly accurate either because cloning uh, in many people's minds conjures up cloned animals. In this case, it's cloned cells, not cloned animals. But again, I turn your attention back to the experiment uh, that I reviewed with you cloning Do Dolly the sheep. And that was a cell, a somatic cell, a cell of the body, could be removed from a patient and put in an empty egg. This egg, of course, would come from a different donor. This transfer of this nucleus into the egg, either by electricity or physically by a pipette, would then, after a few days, yield a blastocyst. Again, remember, day two to day four. The inner cell mass cells would be removed, and then you'd have your embryonic stem cell line, uh, as James Thompson has shown us uh, in his paper. And then those cells could theoretically become any of the cells of the body. In this case, because the cell came from the patient herself, these cells would be pretty much genetically matched to the patient. So this strategy versus the other strategy, 
uh, is important because it would mean that that uh, cells could be used without the need for uh, immune uh, drugs that would uh, modulate the um, immune rejection response. So uh, an important point to uh, understand about this slide is that some drugs that would help immune rejection would be needed because the egg is coming from a different source and there are some genetic elements, DNA, contained in that egg that are floating around in the cytoplasm, in particular in a little organelle called the mitochondria. But this really does take care of a lot of the worries about immune rejection with cells. The third strategy is what I think we'll see first, and that is using embryonic stem cells to study disease. So in this slide, I'm going to show you a patient uh, with a motor neuron disease, ALS, and in this case, the nucleus is removed from one of, this, one of these patient's cells, perhaps the skin or the cheek, and put into an empty egg. The procedure is just the same as I've described, and now, all of a sudden, in a dish, after several weeks, you have a disease-based line. So this is basically an ALS disease that's no longer in vivo, in other words, in a living human being, but rather in vitro, in a glass dish. And this then becomes a very powerful tool to do a number of things. One of those things is being able to understand disease at the cellular level. Another thing is being able to understand the disease at the molecular level, in other words, how the DNA and proteins uh, are interacting and are made. And then finally, a little bit later down the road, you could actually challenge these special cells with kinds of different kinds of drugs and chemicals to see if there were actually certain chemicals and drugs that might help treat or maybe even cure the disease. So of the three strategies I've shown you, this one seems to be getting a lot of attention uh, in the field because it's, uh, as some of the scientists call it, low-hanging fruit. The research uh, discoveries that are likely to come first. So that, in about 25 minutes or so, is your introduction to embryonic stem cells. Now we're going to go quickly to the next kind of stem cell, adult stem cells. And they're called adult stem cells is because they persist with us from birth and into uh, adulthood until we die. Actually, adult stem cells form very early on. This is kind of a bad slide uh, because it's not very clear. But the point of the slide is to show you when different kinds of cells start. So embryonic stem cells, as I've mentioned, starts very early on. And then a little bit later in embryogenesis, about six to eight weeks, the so-called adult stem cells begin. The important difference, one important difference, between embryonic stem cells and adult stem cells are that the adult stem cells aren't as powerful. And they aren't as powerful is because they're older. They've already received instructions to go hither and yon to become brain or bone or muscle or certain organs. And as they're destined for their fate, they become progressively restricted in their ability to make certain kinds of tissues and cells. So when we talk about cells and different kinds of cells having different powers, the most powerful cells that we know in the body are the embryonic stem cells because they can make hundreds of different kinds of cells, indeed the whole organism. And the adult stem cells less powerful because they can make only specific kinds of cells and that they are programmed for this fate fairly early on in development.
many different kinds of adult stem cells are in the in the body and we're only now starting to discover the major kinds the best studied adult stem cell is the hematopoietic or blood stem cell shown here on the left upper left of the slide that cell was actually discovered right here at Stanford University by Dr. Irving Weissman. Then there are stem cells in the skin and in the hair. Uh, they're in a little area of the hair follicle called the bulge. There are only a few stem cells there, but they're very powerful. I also mentioned stem cells in the gut or in the intestine. Again, only two to four of these cells uh, lining each individual crypt in the intestinal epithelium. And then we have stem cells that make sperm and eggs. So these are four kinds of adult stem cells, but there are more. Um, recently, scientists have discovered adult stem cells in the heart. We know that there's a neural stem cell, actually different kinds of neural stem cells. We think there are stem cells in some of the major organs, uh, such as the lungs. And so scientists are busily trying to understand where these cells are and trying to find them and understand better how they work. Another important difference between adult stem cells and embryonic stem cells is that adult stem cells are very few in number. And once you find them, if you can find them, and isolate them from the body, once you get them into the laboratory, they're really, really finicky. They don't divide very well. And so a lot of research is focused on, number one, how to get the cells, number two, how to make sure you have the right cell when you get them, and number three, how to grow them effectively in the laboratory. The last point is most important because having millions and billions of these cells is very important for research and also having enough of them to be therapeutically useful. So here's an important point I want you to take home with you today, and that's this notion of how stem cells become progressively restricted in their fate. Uh, in this field, it's called lineage restriction, and I diagram it for you here on the right. Starting off from the embryonic stem cell, that changes through chemical signals to something called an ectodermal cell. This cell then changes into a neural stem cell. What's important to know about this uh, short chain of events is that embryonic stem cells also make adult stem cells. That's why it's very important to study these two fields together. The neural stem cell then is even more restricted in what it can become, and in this diagram it shows that it can become both a, another stem cell, it has this property called self-renewal, which it will make another stem cell just exactly like it, and then it also can uh, become another cell down the line, in this case a progenitor cell. This progenitor cell is almost the last step on the way to making what's called the terminally differentiated types. The types of cells that, uh, that are in the mature adult tissue, such as neurons, oligodendrocytes, and astrocytes, these are the cells that comprise our central and peripheral nervous system. When cells reach this final stage, they die. At least in this case, the cells will then finally die, only to be replaced by new cells made from progenitor cells that are made from the cells up the, uh, up the line. So this is a good uh, indication of the regenerative power of a certain kind of adult stem cell. The neural stem cell pathway is really fascinating because it starts out with just a few cells and ends at birth with, in case of just the brain, 10 billion 
cells being made. And those cells are of different types. They're of the neurons, oligodendrocytes, astrocytes, the progenitor cells. They make different tissues, the meninges of the brain, corpus callosum, neurons of varying types. These neurons then travel through the system, uh, through the human system, into the periphery where they innervate our limbs and organs. This is a tremendously complex process and one of the most fascinating things about developmental biology. And here's, I think this is actually a fairly old diagram taken from a book um, uh, in 1991. The, the reference here is at the bottom, but it shows just only 15 years ago how many different kinds of neural cells there are in the neural cell pathway. And new cells are being added to this family tree every month. If we wanted to take this picture up a bit to show the entire body and all the different cell types that come from it, here's one example of how complicated and interesting this can be. And so when scientists discover new cell types, they strive to put it in one of these pathways. And they're also very interested uh, about how cells can move along these pathways. And as we'll describe later in the class, how they can move perhaps between pathways and back, uh, go backwards uh, along pathways. These sorts of clues about stem cells, where they go, where they come from, are going to be very important to the field. The most important thing to the field, facing the field right now, is encapsulated in this slide. This slide is actually taken from a course I helped to teach here at Stanford to pre-medical students, uh, Dr. Roel Nusa provided this slide for these lectures. And it's a good indication of the central definition of stem cells. Another thing to take home with you and that you can use at parties if you want is that stem cells are characterized by a certain kind of behavior. This behavior is typified in two decisions. One decision is whether it will make another stem cell of exactly its same type. This is called self-renewal. The second decision is whether it will differentiate or change into the next cell down the line. As I've shown you in the previous slides, the mature cells in the neural system can be astrocytes or neurons. In other uh, pathways, they can be mature stem cells, or I'm sorry, mature cells of the uh, skin, say of hair, uh, of certain organs. So this decision process, which is influenced by genes and proteins, in pathways called signal transduction are at the heart of many very important scientific questions that are being asked in labs all over the world. And in the meeting I just returned from in Australia, the genes, their proteins, and the pathways behind these decisions to make either more stem cells or make more cells of a specific type are, are very important because it could mean that if we figure this out, that we can make millions and billions of cells for specific therapies, just the right kind of cells we need. Another important connection that we'll get to in the third lecture is this behavior of self-renewal. Well, if stem cells can make unlimited supplies of their own, in other words, self-renew, then that is a very interesting phenomenon that bears a striking resemblance to another problem in human health, where cells 
divide rapidly, and that's cancer. So there is, in fact, a cancer connection. This process of self-renewal and differentiation are tightly controlled by gene regulation or gene expression. And so it's possible that when this regulatory pathway is disrupted or it goes wrong, cancer can result. And so the hunt is on for the cancer stem cell. That stem cell that somehow has lost its ability to be regulated by the body's normal signals. This is called homeostasis. And this regulation goes drastically wrong, resulting in millions and billions of cells that then result in cancer. In the blood cancers, this is most apparent, and the cancer stem cell has now been at least um, hopefully identified in a couple of other systems, uh, prostate cancer being one of them and breast cancer being a, a third type of cancer. So it could be that certain kinds of uh, solid tumor cancers and blood cancers might have a common denominator in a cancer stem cell. So that concludes the first lecture. We talked about the basic biology of the cell. We've talked a little bit about genes, DNA, and expression, gene expression. We've talked a little bit about stem cells and human embryology, especially the early days of human embryology, and the connections to mammal embryology and what we've learned about the processes of going from one cell to billions of cells. In the adult organism, in a human being, we are nearly 10 trillion cells. Uh, we are made up of nearly 10 trillion cells. So this is an astonishing process from one cell to trillions. So for next week, what I'd like you to do is read chapters one, through five in stem cell now. These are short chapters, only about 10 to 15 pages or so. They'll go very quickly. Also, I'd like you to read James Thompson's science paper from 1998. I'll pass it out now. Here's the abstract. You'll see that first paragraph I mentioned right here on the screen. Look for it on the first page of the paper and on, on subsequent papers, look for the abstract. Read the abstract, and then if you have time, go to the back of the paper and read the conclusions. And then what I'd like you to do is put this paper away for five weeks. And then the last week of class, after you've had the last class, take it out again, read it again, and see what you've learned over the last five weeks and see if this has been helpful to you. Um, that's it, and we'll see everybody next week.